0: Well, good evening and welcome again to Sunday night service. As Rachel mentioned, we are finishing tonight our series in the book of Habakkuk. So if you have your Bibles with you tonight, I would encourage you to open them to the book of Habakkuk. It's an Old Testament prophet. And this week, as I I was thinking of just some of the, the feelings and the thoughts that must have been going through Habakkuk's mind during this time frame in which he lived... I came across this video which I thought so, so eloquently expressed so much of what Habakkuk must have been feeling. The waters were rising, the pressure was closing in and he was looking for God and crying out over and over and over again. Waiting for God to show up, asking for God's deliverance and then God speaks to and through him and then finally... Tonight we look at Habakkuk chapter 3, which is Habakkuk's response to the revelation that God has given him in Habakkuk 1 and Habakkuk chapter 2. And so we're going to finish this series tonight. And as I told you last week, I think especially this chapter and especially the last couple verses of Habakkuk chapter 3 are a few of the most profound verses in scripture of someone affirming their faith in God. And what a faithfulness in God looks like no matter the circumstances and trials and difficulties that may come our way. Well, some of the most significant words that I have ever said, I said standing somewhere, I think it was right about here. Now you're like, wow, that must have been a really good sermon. Which one was it? Can I have the the link? Well, they're all really good. You'll have to listen to all of my sermons. But no, standing in just about this position somewhere was where just about nine and a half plus years ago now is where I said the vows to my wife as we got married. Standing literally on this very platform almost 10 years ago. And it's funny, if, if, you were, if you've been married or certainly you know people who have gone through the engagement process, if you talk to any peop, anyone who's engaged, when they're leading up to the wedding, they're, they're thinking and planning of a million things. Right? There's the dress and there's the location, and then there's who you're going to invite, and then there's planning the ceremony, and there's all the logistics of the ceremony. There's the reception, the food, the honeymoon. But it's interesting because they often don't think about what actually may be the most significant parts of the whole ceremony. And that's something that I always help talk to them about as I've had the, the privilege of helping and, and officiating at different weddings is perhaps the most significant part of a wedding are the vows that the couple make to one another, right? The promises that they make to one another before God and before the people who are assembled. And there are many different kinds of vows. I'm sure you've been to weddings where people have written their own. But in most vows, as people stand across from this person that they're going to spend the rest of their life with, typically at some point in the vows that they exchange with each other comes the phrases that sound something like this, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. See, why don't we just get up and when we get married to someone say, for better, for richer and in health, do I stay married to you? Because that would be what we would hope our lives would be like, that it would always be better, that it would always be towards wealth and it would always be in richness. But we know that it's in those times that we make those vows that we promise that we'll be with that person, not just when life is great and the promotions come and the family's doing well, but when we lose the job. And when the bank account seems to be running so low, we don't know where the food will be bought for next week. And when the relationship with the family and the kids isn't great. And we make those vows, those promises, because the promise we're making to that person is, even if anything were to happen, I would stay with you. Even if anything were to happen, I would not leave And that's the kind of faith, what I call an even-if faith, that Habakkuk had towards God. God, even if any of these things, anything wrong could happen, God, I still want to have, I'm going to still have faith in you. And as we look at Habakkuk 3, we're going to discover tonight three characteristics of how we have a faith that stays with God, even if anything in our lives could go wrong. And so Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says this, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigeonath. Now, I said that word real fast because I don't know exactly how to say it, all right? So if you just start the read the light sound and you say it real quickly, most likely that's not a person's name, but they think it's a musical term. Probably the word literally means back and forth quickly. So he's probably saying this is um, what comes after is clearly a prayer. Most likely it was a prayer to be read aloud and even to be sung as they worshiped together. And so that word basically means it should be to an upbeat tune, to back and forth. This is an exciting, song that Habakkuk has written and wants them to sing afterwards. He says this in verse two, O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In some translations where it says, I have heard the report of you, it says, I have heard your fame. I've heard of your fame. You are so beyond just my own understanding that others have told me of your greatness. Certainly Habakkuk is here thinking of his family and in his religious upbringing. Other people exclaiming to him and telling him how great the God is that he serves. And then he's also heard of the report of God's work. And he says, you do I fear. Some translations translate it of you do I stand in awe. Of you do I stand in amazement. That phrase fear is not he shrinks back and he's scared before God. But it's a proper respect of standing in awe and amazement and wonder of who God is and how he has worked in the world. And he cries out this, in the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. He's saying, as you've done before God, would you make that work happen again, still the same today? And then he says this, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. The first characteristic of an even-if faith that Habakkuk shows us tonight is that an even-if faith always trusts that God will always be good. It trusts that God will always be good to us. He stands back in awe and wonder of who God is He's heard of his fame, of his renown, and it causes him to move in worship. And then he says this phrase at the end, In your wrath, remember mercy. In your wrath, God, would you remember your mercy? See, we sometimes make a false dichotomy between God's wrath and God's mercy. We say, well, which is God? Is God a God of wrath or is he a God of mercy? The answer is yes. He's both. He's both a God of wrath and a God of mercy. And it's hard for us to get our minds around, but if we emphasize one side to the neglect of the other, we misrepresent who God is and how he's revealed himself to us in our world. And the key to this is God is good in his wrath and God is good in his mercy. And in both his wrath and his mercy, God is good towards us. The Old Testament is filled with passages talking about God's wrath. It's his righteous and proper response towards sin and evil in the world. One other example in the prophets is in the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum chapter 1 verse 2 says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. And we saw this, if you were with us last week, with these five woes that God gives, gives out of this judgment that is to come. The wrath of God says that God cannot stand idly by while evil and wrongdoing happens in the world. He has to do something to address the evil in our world. And the wrath of God is his righteous and proper response towards evil and sin. But sometimes if you can start to think, if you read some people, you would think, well, that, that God of wrath is the Old Testament God. But the New Testament God's not like that. Well, you just simply haven't read your New Testament closely enough. Because in the book of Romans, it's throughout the New Testament, but in the book of Romans chapter 1, it says this, For the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The wrath of God is not an Old Testament concept, but it's who God is, meaning it's always his righteous response towards ungodliness, towards unrighteousness, towards sin. But Habakkuk was crying out to God, which is appropriate to do, that in the uh, the midst of him judging sin, which is a good thing, that sin is judged by God, that God would be one who would remember his mercy. That in the midst of wrath, God would also remember mercy. And we see throughout the scriptures that these things often go together. They're not separated from God, but they're two sides to his character. See, while God is a God of wrath who punishes sin, God is also a God of mercy. Meaning this, that God does not treat you and I as we deserve God does not treat you and I as we deserve. God is a God of mercy, meaning that we deserve because of the sin and the evil in our own hearts and our own lives, that we deserve to face punishment by God. We deserve eternal separation from God because of our sin, but God is a merciful God in that he does not treat us as we should. And the greatest place where God's wrath and God's mercy meets is in the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God's wrath and mercy meet is at the cross of Jesus. Where God's punishment towards sin was poured out on Jesus. That he paid the punishment for all of our sin who believe in his name. And at the same time at the cross, mercy overflowed for you and I. That because Jesus was treated how we should have been treated, that now we received kindness and grace from God that we don't deserve. And he and, and Habakkuk is saying that God is both a God of wrath and a God of mercy. But either way, God, whichever you decide towards us right now, that you are a God who is good. The God is a God who is so good towards us. And Habakkuk, as he's been praying, starts to get this, this greater picture As he challenges and leans into God's character, he starts to understand this greater idea of who God is and that God's plan is always for our ultimate good. Because God is a good God and if you're his child, he loves you unconditionally. His plan for your life is always for your ultimate good. But here's the thing, the ultimate good that God has in mind for your life isn't necessarily the thing that you think you need or the thing you want or what you would even say, this is what will ultimately be good in my life. So God will allow us to go through hardships and pain and difficulty like how Habakkuk did in his time. Why? It's not that God is no longer good, but God has a greater good that Habakkuk didn't see and he didn't understand at first. But in that, in those sufferings, God says, I have a greater good even for you than you would understand. See, in your pain and your difficulty, there's a greater good that God has for us that we may not even know. But God is a God who's always good. Even in the moments of our circumstances, we may not know how that makes sense right in front of us. An example that's been very real in my life recently of this is that the fact that my wife, for over two months now, has been very sick. She literally has been sick each and every day. And if I were to tell you that, you'd be like, well, that's not a good thing. And I would agree, it's not a good thing that my wife is sick. I don't want my wife to be sick. But in a sense, it is a good thing because she's sick, because she's expecting our first child this next spring. And so, yeah, right, that's that's the the best thing. That's so... That's so great, that's such good news, the ultimate good that comes from it. And it's been funny as I, as I tell people, oh, you know, we're, we're expecting, of course, the, everyone, we're so excited and we really are. And they go, oh, well, well, how's your wife? And I always say, well, first off, how about me? I'm fine, thank you for asking. <laughs> I don't say that, all right. <laughs> they say, well, how, how is Kristen feeling? And I'm like, she feels pretty awful. She feels pretty awful. And then some people, which I I understand, they're like, well, just remember, since she's sick, that's actually a good sign. It's actually a good sign for, for the baby's health that the mother is sick. It means things are growing and developing. And I'm like, I understand that, but when she's home hugging the toilet, I don't think I'm gonna tap on her shoulder and remind her of that, right? This is a good thing right now. This is good. In the midst of the... The struggle and the hardship of life, God has a greater good for us. But sometimes we don't see it in the midst of our own pain and our own hardship. But God's a God who's always good. In his wrath, in his judgment, in his mercy, and in his grace, he's always good. And Habakkuk has learned to trust in the greater good of God that his goodness is always there towards us. The body of the chapter here in Habakkuk chapter 3 is primarily Habakkuk looking back and remembering the faithfulness for what God has done. And there, this is a song, this is a poem, so there's lots of rich imagery which we don't have time to work line by line, but we'll, we'll comment on some as they go through. So Habakkuk chapter 3, starting in verse 3, says this. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Peron. Now most of these images are pulling from the time, excuse me, the time of the Exodus. The time of the Exodus, which that, that historical event is recounted in your second book of your Bible. God's people had been in slavery and bondage in Egypt for hundreds of years when God sent a man named Moses to come and to save and to remove his people out of Egypt and then to take them into the promised land. And this event which so encapsulated the faithfulness and working of God is the main event that the Old Testament keeps looking back to when it wants to remind themselves of God's faithfulness. And it's the event that Habakkuk looks back to. Taman and Mount Paran are both places that would be down in the Sinai region of where God would have come to them when the the images of God coming to this people at Mount Sinai, when he met them and gave them the Ten Commandments, revealed himself to them. That's the the idea that this passage has here in chapter 3, verse 3. The effects of this, of God coming and revealing his glory is seen. It says this, his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. God revealed himself to the people, if you remember, at night with a pillar of fire. And thunder and fire and smoke were images that were associated with the presence and the glory of God. And Habakkuk is recalling these things. Verse 5 says before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. This is recounting the events of Exodus, I believe it's chapters 7 through 11. Where God came and struck down different plagues upon the Egyptians. It's looking back at the plagues. And those plagues, if you've ever studied those passages in Egypt, weren't just random things. Moses would come before the king. His name was Pharaoh. Ask the people to go and Pharaoh would say no. So God would send a plague. God wasn't up in heaven being like, what do I want to do this time? Uh, Frogs, locusts will change a river into blood. God was actually what those were. Each of those things were gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And God's saying, oh, you worship the Nile River? Blood. You worship locusts, I'm going to send a plague. You worship frogs, I'm going to send another plague. And all the plagues are actually God saying, I am the one true God by overriding the gods that the Egyptians had. And it's looking back to that time. Verse 6, again, looking at the impact that this had throughout the earth. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushion in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Cushion and Midian, Cushion is another name for Midian. It was a region that came up and tried to go against the people of God in the book of Numbers during this same time frame, and they were soundly defeated for trying to rebel against God's people. Then in verse 8 to 15 he starts to shift to reflect more on this character of God and the image that he uses of who God is is this god of a divine warrior a god who fights for his people. He says this verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariots of salvation. You stripped the sheath from your bow calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhe, the raging waters swept on, the deep gave forth its voice, it lifted its hand on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place, at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger." It's this image of a God who is in control of all of nature. The sun and moon stand in their place, meaning they pale in comparison to how great this God is. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare thigh to neck. You, with your, excuse me, you pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters." He's looking back there to, to when God's people were, were trapped as, after they had been released and Pharaoh's armies came after them and they went out and the Red Sea was parted and God's people went through and the, the Egyptians followed and the waters came and scattered and killed and called a mass chaos and it was clearly God who fought for his people. They didn't cross through to the other side and think, wow, look how great of warriors we are. They left and said, wow, look at how great God is. And Habakkuk looks back at this event to remind himself of indeed how great God is. Verse 16, this response to him is almost overwhelming when he thinks back to what God has done. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait. For the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us it says i am moved to the core of my being when i think back to what god has done and i will wait patiently because i know that god will do it again that god will do it again the second characteristic of an even if faith is a faith that trusts god has always been faithful it's a faith that trusts that god has always been faithful It's significant that throughout the Old Testament and Habakkuk models that for us here. When he looks back at the faithfulness of God, he doesn't just remind himself of this concept, of this idea. God is a faithful God. God's faithful. But he actually goes back and he looks back at the facts to remind himself of how God has been faithful. The great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. He said, Habakkuk is not just comforting himself by playing with ideas. He is speaking of the things that God has actually done. The Christian faith is solidly based upon facts, not ideas. And if the facts recorded in the Bible are not true, then we have no hope and no comfort, for we are not saved by ideas, but by facts, by events. See, he looks back and says, just as Habakkuk reminded himself of the facts of what God has done, so too we can look back at the facts first, of course, in God's word, at what God has done. When we think we're alone, that God is not powerful, that God is not strong enough to solve the problems in our lives, we should look back here and remind us of ourselves of the fact of who God is and what he's done in history. But not only that, but we can look back and remind ourselves of the facts of what God has done in our own lives lives. See, the reality is if we were to stop and really think about where we've seen God's faithfulness, if you've walked with God for any amount of time, you've seen it over and over and over again. That you've seen how God has taken large things and small things, great details and insignificant things, and he's worked them out perfectly to guide and to lead you to where you are today. That God has been faithful. It's not just a concept, but it's based on history. It's based on facts. See, we sometimes could miss this idea that God is faithful, though, because how God delivers us sometimes looks different. In the Bible, God delivers people in different ways, and Habakkuk is looking for this deliverance of God. Sometimes God delivers people from their suffering. He takes it away and he removes it. He takes them out of situations so that they don't have to go through it anymore. Noah was taken out of the suffering of the flood and set aside. Maybe you know of someone who was facing an awful health diagnosis and God miraculously healed them and God pulled them away from the suffering and delivered them from that so they didn't have to go through it. If you're like me, that's the kind of prayers I pray the most. God, I don't want to go through this. God, I don't want to hurt. God, I don't want that. This is going to be painful. God, deliver me from it. And sometimes God does. But just because God doesn't deliver us from things doesn't mean God's not being faithful in delivering us. Because sometimes God doesn't deliver us from. God delivers us through our suffering. God delivers us sometimes through the pain and through the difficulty and through the troubles and trials of life. There's so many examples of this throughout scripture. Daniel, a well-known man who lived just after the life of Habakkuk was taken captives by the Babylonians, he lived through suffering. God God took him and placed him in a place of significance and he was arrested in prison and God took him through that suffering and then through that suffering, he was then able again to glorify God. If you've walked with us in the morning service here at Moody Church, you've been reminded like I have this last fall of how God took Joseph through deep pain and suffering but for God's ultimate glory and his good, that God was faithful, not just when he takes us out of suffering but even through suffering. But sometimes the deliverance that we're looking for doesn't actually happen till later. The deliverance from our pain and suffering never happens in this life, but only happens in eternity. The Bible is filled with this. And I love that the end of Hebrews chapter 11, which recounts some of the greatest examples of faith where God delivered people from and through things, ends with the people that God didn't deliver them from now, but he will one day in heaven. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, Of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They were looking later. Their deliverance came later in life. And God's call for us amidst this promise that he is a faithful God. He'll deliver us from our suffering, through our suffering. And maybe for some of us later on in heaven is the only place we will be delivered God's call on our lives is to wait for him. To seek him, but to wait on his timing and on his plan in our lives. Like Habakkuk said, I will wait for this day to come upon the people who invade us. Thinking of waiting, the prophet Isaiah says this, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow weary, or excuse me, he does not grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall rise up and be weary. The young men shall be exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord, those who wait for the Lord, shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I came across an article this week of a young woman, I believe she's in her 20s, who was diagnosed with a physical disability at three years old. And I read it, so it was powerful in her writing. She wrote this, healing in this life may come, or maybe I'm called to a deeper and rewarding journey of faith through my suffering. It's an example of saying God is faithful in my life. Maybe that means he'll deliver me from it, but maybe it means it's through it, and maybe it means that it won't be someday till in heaven where I'll understand what God has allowed me to go through. Whether God delivers us from our suffering, through our suffering, or our deliverance doesn't come till later, that ultimately God is a God who is faithful to us and we can look back and see his faithfulness in our lives. So as Habakkuk looks back and he says this, he he culminates this song of praise with these verses at the end of Habakkuk chapter 3. He says this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, Third characteristic of an even-if faith is it that trust God no matter the circumstances. To trust God no matter the circumstances of your life. In verse 17, he uses expressions that to us don't really mean a lot. I've never checked on a fig tree. I don't look at the olive crop. I don't really have any pastures that my flocks are in. But if you put that in today's language, he's saying even if the stock market crashes even if I have no money in my bank account, Mm -hmm. even if every grocery store and Walgreens closes down and a foreign nation comes in and invades us, and I have no semblance of security or life as I've ever known it, even if anything wrong in my life could happen, I still will rejoice in God. He's saying, imagine the worst circumstance that you could happen in your life. The people closest to you pass away, betray you, whatever it may be, Habakkuk says, whatever that is the worst could come. And even if that happens, I will still rejoice in God. See, circumstances cannot stop our faith when we rest in the God of scripture. They couldn't stop Habakkuk's faith. It wasn't based off of just the circumstances of life. See, he knew God was his savior. That he took joy in the God of his salvation, it says. It was reminded this week of this passage in Isaiah chapter 43. It says this that when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. See, Habakkuk shows us that we can still have joy in Jesus in the midst of the hardest times of our lives. It doesn't mean that we're happy or that we like, oh great, this is happening, how lucky am I? But that there's still deep joy to be found in God, no matter what the circumstances of your life look like tonight. Because God is our Savior. He can save us in and through any circumstances that would come our way. He not only was convinced that God was his savior, but also that he relied upon the fact that God was his strength. God was not just his savior, but God was his strength. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on the high places. He was convinced of God's ability to provide for him no matter what. This passage here in Habakkuk 3 reminds us of Psalm chapter 18 where the psalmist writes this, "'For who is God but the Lord? "'And who is a rock except our God? "'The God who equipped me with strength "'and made my way blameless. "'He made my feet like the deer "'and set me secure on the heights.'" See, here in the Midwest, if you see deer out, you normally see them in a field walking along, maybe by some, some grass or, or by the edge of the woods, and it's not a big deal. But where the Israelites lived, it was a very rugged country. And deer were very sure-footed animals that could hold on. And it didn't matter how steep the inclines were, that they were secure wherever they were planted. A few years ago, I saw a video by National Geographic. This is a picture from the video of an animal that has what you could call sure footing. And it's on the side of a 160-foot cliff where there's mineral salts coming out so that the animals go out onto it because they want to lick. That's basically a straight up and down incline with just inches, not even inches out. See, and sometimes when God places our feet secure, it doesn't mean that we're going to be on the top of this wide, broad mountain, but it means sometimes it'll feel like we're just hanging on for dear life. Right, if we take one wrong step, it's a long way down. But when God is our strength and he places us there, he will sustain us each and every day. Habakkuk didn't say my faith can survive even if all this stuff happens because of how good I am. He says my faith can survive no matter what happens because of how strong and how great God is. It wasn't dependent on his ability, but it was dependent on the strength and the character and the nature of God. There are a few men who lived a few years after the time of Habakkuk. Their names were Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. You might know them as the names of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, which their names were changed into when the Babylonians took them captive during this same captivity that Habakkuk writes about back in the country of Israel. The king Nebuchadnezzar had made a statue that everyone was to bow down to. And these three God-fearing men refused to bow down. So Nebuchadnezzar took them, was about to throw them into the fiery furnace to kill them. Gave them one last chance. One last chance to recant, to come out, to apologize, to bow down before this other God. And they give us this example, this faith that even if anything were to happen, what it looks like. Daniel chapter 3 says this. This is them talking, O Nebuchadnezzar, that was the king of Babylon, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. God can deliver us, but I love this. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They model for us this kind of faith that knows God can, believes God will, but worships God even if he doesn't. Knows God can save us and pull us out of any circumstance, believes God will, but he worships God no matter, even if God doesn't show up the way that he expected. See, God is not just our savior. God is our strength each and every day. And we can trust in God no matter the circumstances of our lives. Because we, our faith doesn't depend on our own efforts. But on a God who is faithful and provides for us each and every day. When you came in tonight, you received a bulletin. And in that bulletin was a little 3 by 5 card. If you could take a moment, go ahead and grab out that 3 by 5 card that came in your bulletin. I'm going to invite the band to come on up during this time. And as we wrap up this series on Habakkuk, as we've been thinking about where God is in the midst of our troubles and trials and the questions and the hardships of our lives, I just want us to take a few moments to pause and reflect tonight. And on the left-hand side, there's just this question that says this, where have I seen God's faithfulness in my life? Habakkuk had this discipline of looking back and he saw how God had been faithful to him and it reminded him again So just take a few moments tonight as we close and just think, where has God been faithful in my life? Through both significant circumstances and through the small, where have you seen God to be faithful? And then on the left side, it says this, where do I need to trust that God will continue to be faithful? Because we're all facing circumstances that we need to trust that God will not only be our savior, but our strength each and every day to trust that God will provide for us anew and afresh again tomorrow. So as you think back to where God's been faithful, then think ahead to saying, what am I facing now in my life? What are those things that even if this were to happen, that I still need to place my faith and my trust in God? So take a few moments and go ahead and fill these out, and we'll sing here in a few minutes.